0: This podcast episode should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue or health inquiry, including matters discussed on this podcast episode. Welcome back to the Narcissistic Abuse Support Platform Podcast brought to you by Unfiltered. This is episode 8. In today's episode, Natalie, a licensed clinical psychologist, will answer these five questions from our community. 1. What advice do you have for those practicing radical acceptance? I find it so hard to just accept that what I experienced is abuse. How can I take small steps towards radical acceptance every day? Two. I was the scapegoat of my family. How do I deal with the grief and shame that comes with that role? Three. What are some of the reasons that people get stuck in narcissistic relationships? Four. How can I manage the anger and grief that I have towards my non-narcissistic parent who was an enabler my entire childhood? Five, why do narcissists hate when you go to therapy? Whenever I go to therapy, it starts a huge fight. Hey Natalie, thank you for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you in this podcast episode. Of course.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Let's get started right away. So the first question is, what advice do you have for those practicing radical acceptance? I find it so hard to just accept that what I experienced is abuse. How can I take small steps towards radical acceptance every day? Sure. So acceptance is a pretty powerful um,
1: healing technique, but... I, I I understand where this person's coming from because it can be really challenging to practice it. Um, so the first thing that I typically suggest to people is that the word acceptance often comes with a lot of baggage around it. Um, understandably, some people really don't like the word. Um, I think a lot of us were taught maybe early in life or by the culture we live in that accepting something means that you like it or that you agree with it or that you're okay with it. And none of that is true. <laughs> um, you can accept something without liking it, agreeing with it, uh, you know, approving of it, whatever. So the first thing I would suggest is if you have trouble with the word acceptance, maybe using a different word, instead of acceptance, you can say that you're dropping the struggle with something Um, that you're making room for it, that you're holding it gently, or that you're sitting with it. Um, Those words could make acceptance a little bit easier. Um, It can also help to think about acceptance as just um, consenting to receive reality. I think that was a definition of it that I found somewhere once when I was Googling it. Um, that you are just choosing to not fight the reality of whatever it was that happened to you um, It sounds like this person is is having you know trouble consenting to the reality that they were maybe um, abused um, So being able to just say I'm just consenting to receive the reality of the situation um, mm-hmm. could be helpful And then also um, things like, Uh, the quicksand metaphor, remembering that, uh, you know, if you're in quicksand, if you're flailing around and fighting it, you are going to sink a lot faster than if you kind of sit still, um, accept that you're in this situation that will prevent you from sinking faster and will allow you more time to try to get out of the situation without without flailing around. Um, So those are, those are some things that I would suggest, um, to help practice acceptance. And I think it's also important just to, um, put out there that, um, people might say, well, you know, how am I supposed to accept narcissistic abuse? Right. And the idea of acceptance is not that you are accepting it so you can say, okay, I'm going to put up with this for the rest of my life. It's so that you can, truly acknowledge the reality of what's happening to you because only then can you start to do things to change your situation right so it's not about saying like i accept that someone is you know abusing me and that's just what i have to put up with it's no i accept the reality that i am in an abusive situation now what am i going to do about that
0: yeah that's that was really great points like i have heard also like in like in our community and in different Facebook groups, where people say, like, like, how? Why would I accept the unacceptable? Like mm-hmm. that, that line, many of them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah, it's not about it's not about liking it or or being okay with it. It's just about fully understanding the reality of it, because you can't do something about it until you do that. Yes.
0: Uh, let's go to the second question, which is. I was the scapegoat of my family. How do I deal with the grief and shame that comes with that role? Well, I mean, I'm sure this is something that a lot of listeners
1: can um, identify with. And this is something that we talk about in the world of psychology in terms of people often take on roles in dysfunctional families. Um, And one of those roles is typically the scapegoat. dysfunctional families can have a very hard time being honest about where the problem is or who the problem, I don't want to say a person is a problem, but like who's being problematic, I guess. Um, and so instead of, you know, dealing with their issues head on, they, they will decide that a certain member of the family is to blame when in reality they're, they're not the center of the issue. It's just easier to point to that person than it is to the person or persons who are actually causing the problem, right? So I think it's, I mean, I'm sorry to the person who asked this question that you are, you know, that you were the scapegoat in your family. Um, but I'm glad that you've come to understand that that was the role they put you in. And I think part of the the grieving and the feeling around that is acknowledging that it is, it is a role. It is not you, right? This is something... This is a role that was assigned to you. It is not who you actually are, right? Um, just because your family treats you like the scapegoat does not mean that you are the scapegoat or that you're the cause of all the problems in their life or your life. And I think it's good to be able to separate yourself out from, well, my family thinks this about me and I know that that's actually not true, Right. Um, but I understand that it really hurts to have your family think things about you that are not true. And it really hurts that you can't ever convince them otherwise. Or I should say that it's not in your control when whether they come to understand that or not, right? There's nothing you can do to, like, make them get it. So I think that it makes sense to to grieve, to grieve the fact that your family maybe doesn't really know who you are. Um, to grieve the fact that your family has placed you in a role that you don't deserve and didn't ask for. Um, And it's okay to, you know, we associate grief with death, right? But you can grieve things that, you know, involve people that are still around. And it's okay to let yourself feel all of those kind of painful feelings around that um, while also maintaining your dignity and your... um, Knowledge of who you actually know that you are.
0: Right, right. Uh, I was thinking uh, your your answer made me think that one of the hardest things about being the scapegoat or scapegoat or being in the scapegoat role must be because uh, if you have been in that role for so long from the like, I don't know, from the very from very young age. And the way we think about ourselves often translates into how we behave in the real world too. So Mm -hmm. let's say that someone has said to the scapegoat that you will always fail in whatever you try to do. And then Mm -hmm. that person tries to maybe when they have, you know, left the family, once they have Mm -hmm. finally left the, the, uh, the toxic family, and then they try to do things, but then they notice themselves failing because they still have this idea that or the voice. And even though they are like trying to think, yeah, it is a role. It is a role. But then Mm -hmm. if they don't, you know, somehow get uh, rid of that thought, they still might behave in the real world in a way that they, mm, you know, they never succeed or Mm I don't know, something like uh, what I'm trying to say is that how do you do you have any anything to say or add to this? Like, how do you get rid of the role if at the same time you look your life and find reasons? Well, that is true. What they say about me, that is like, do you understand what I'm trying to ask? Yeah,
1: yeah, Yeah. I think I think so and um the way that i typically explain this to people is that our brains are always capable of change um it's not like our brains are like set in stone when we're 20 or 30 or 40 or whatever Um, we're we're always able to change our brain granted it is easier to change a younger brain than an older brain uh, but it can still be done right And so I think that in order to get out of that groove in your brain that you're, you know, you're the cause of all the problems, all of this is all my fault, I'm a bad person, whatever other kind of scapegoat beliefs or thoughts that you have, is to start to try, (laughs) the way that I explain it to people is that it's like hiking trails in your brain, where it's like, if you've gone down the same hiking trail in your brain a million times about how you're you're, you know, responsible for everything, everything bad that happens is your fault. You know, that's going to be a very well-worn trail in your brain, right? And so to start acting and believing different things is like trying to make a hiking trail where there is none yet, right? And that's really hard, (laughs) right? It's like, there's all this stuff in the way. You don't know which way to go. How are you supposed to do that? But the more that you try to go down that new pathway, the easier and easier it gets and the more that you start to make a trail. Now, in terms of what you're talking about, you don't have to do that perfectly. It's not like you have to start going down the new trail 100% of the time and never go down the scapegoat trail ever again. That's just unrealistic, right? (laughs) This is something you've been doing your whole life. That's just not going to happen. But The idea is that if you start to go down the new trail more and you start to go down the old trail less, that is enough to start to make a change, right? So you can start to see, oh, I can exist outside of this role or not everything bad that happens is, you know, entirely my fault. Um, And I like to use this metaphor because this takes a lot of practice and a lot of patience and a lot of repetition. So I encourage people not to get too, um, down on themselves if it's taking a while because it's going to take a while.
0: Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Then the third question, what are some of the reasons that people get stuck in narcissistic relationships? Oh boy. Um,
1: (laughs) that's, that's a big question. Um, I'll, I'll do my best to, to answer it, uh, succinctly. Um, I think that, you know, um, I got in touch with you guys originally because, um, one of my specialties is, is working with people who have been in cults and to help them heal and recover from their experiences. And I think that an answer to this question, why do people get caught up in narcissistic relationships is kind of similar to why do people end up in cults? And I I think, I think it's similar in two reasons. So number one, um, people, people do not (laughs) get caught up in narcissistic relationships or cults because they are, and I'm going to put these in air quotes, because they are stupid, weak, um, followers, all of these really kind of, um, derogatory and un-incorrect things that people, and, and I don't just see people say these things from the outside. I see people who are trying to recover from narcissistic relationships, say the stuff about themselves. Like, I was so stupid. I was so weak. How could I fall for it? Et cetera, et cetera. Right. The truth is anybody can get stuck in a narcissistic relationship. Anybody can get stuck in a cult. People get stuck in these things because narcissists use techniques that work, right? They use techniques that are meant to draw people into their web, right? And they succeed a lot of the time, unfortunately. It's not because there's anything wrong with the person, right? It's because like they are just susceptible to this form of psychological manipulation and abuse that I would say most people are susceptible to. The other thing that I would say about why people get stuck in these relationships and how it's similar to cults is that narcissists know when to strike the same way that cults know when to strike. They will catch you. When you are in the middle of a period of loss or transition in your life, that is when most people who join a cult will join a cult. When they've experienced a death, they lost their job, they moved, they went away to college, like some sort of, you know, period. Same thing with getting into a relationship with a narcissist. It is, um, you know, they, they are looking for people who are in these, positions, right. Who are, who are maybe a little more vulnerable than they would be otherwise to, you know, um, quote unquote, falling for the, uh, manipulations of the narcissist. Um, so I would say that people get stuck in these relationships because just about anybody can get stuck in these relationships and because narcissists have a keen eye for, um, someone who is in a period of transition or loss who is maybe a bit on the more vulnerable side to getting kind of pulled into their web so to speak
0: yeah that thank you for that answer to Mm -hmm. the big question uh so the fourth question is how can i manage the anger and grief that i have towards my non-narcissistic parent who was an enabler my entire childhood
1: yeah, that is, that is a tough one. Um, first of all, to just know that it is perfectly fine to have a lot of anger and a lot of grief and a lot of whatever other painful emotion you have toward the enabler um, because we can look at it from kind of a more objective point of view of like, well, the enabler was probably just as much of a, a pawn or a victim in this scenario as the, the child was, right? Like they're both kind of being abused by a narcissistic person. Um, however, if we look at it a little bit more subjectively, uh, one of a parent's primary roles is to protect their child, right? <laughs> and not just from like physical dangers, like, you know, from falling down a well or something, but from psychological, dangers too, right? Like being around somebody who's engaging in in narcissistic abuse. And I think it's okay to, to hold both of those things at the same time that like, okay, the enabler parent was a victim, excuse me, to some degree or another. And they also failed at protecting their child from this person who They never should have had a child with or, you know, never should have let their child be around. Um, I think that I think that a few other things could be helpful in terms of managing the anger and the grief, Um, letting yourself feel it, maybe writing letters to the non-narcissistic parent that you may or may not ever give to them, but that kind of really um, let them have it. So to speak, in terms of your your feelings toward them and what they're enabling did to you and allowed to have happen to you, um, and then I would also suggest um, it can be especially helpful to attend like support group meetings for this sort of thing for people who are like you know the adult children of you know um, narcissistic parents or dysfunctional families. Um, I don't know, uh, if it's okay for me to like mention a specific group, but, um, I'll preface it without saying that, uh, saying that I know that 12 step programs are not for everybody. And I would not ever say that like, everybody should try this one thing, but, um, there is a 12 step program called adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. Um, that is like a worldwide program. You can find their, I think their website is adultchildren.org. Um, and that can be a helpful one because, um, a lot of people in that program would relate to this scenario, to being raised in a family where there was an abusive parent and then an enabling parent. Um, so being able to express and process your anger and your grief with other people who have very similar situations in their own lives can be very healing and cathartic as well.
0: Okay, thank you so much for the uh, suggestion or the uh, that you mentioned mm-hmm. that that group. Uh, then let's go to the last question. Sure. Why do narcissists hate when you go to the therapy? Whenever I go to therapy, it starts a huge fight. Yes, I I, I want to laugh at this. I I want
1: the person to know I'm not laughing at them or the situation at all, but. I'm laughing because it's so true, right? Like this. <laughs> Narcissists hate it when people go to therapy. Um, and And why is that? It's because that they know more likely than not, that if you start to tell the truth about the relationship in therapy, even if you are still kind of in the dark about what's going on odds are pretty good that your therapist is going to start picking up on the fact that something is not quite right in this relationship, right? Um, and, uh, you know, to to go back to the cult thing, it's it's the same sort of thing where a narcissist doesn't want you to be spending time with anyone who might be casting a critical eye on what they're doing, right? Same thing with cults. Cults don't want people Uh, who are members to be spending time with folks who might start to question what the group is doing, right? They want to keep your critical thinking as, you know, muted as possible. And if you start to go to therapy and your therapist starts to go, huh, that doesn't seem great, or that seems kind of abusive, or have you ever looked into narcissistic abuse, (laughs) you know, that um, that could maybe mean that, that the jig is up for them in a sense, Um, that that you are going to be starting to hear from someone who can either kind of teach you about narcissism and narcissistic abuse or will at least start to, like, point you in that direction. Um, And when people start to wake up and get informed and enlightened as to what is actually going on with them, you know, odds are pretty good that that is going to screw up the the narcissist's plan for things, right? You're not going to be as easy to control anymore. You're not going to put up with a lot of stuff anymore. And you might, you might leave, right? You might finally realize like, oh, this is awful. It's not going to get any better. I need to go. Right. Um, so that is most likely why the narcissist, uh, does not want you going to your therapy sessions. Um, and I gotta say like, obviously I'm, I'm not going to pretend like uh m- the mental health profession is you know amazing and perfect and there are never any bad actors and never any mistakes there there definitely are unfortunately um but i would say that generally speaking anybody in your life who is like you know pretty critical about you going to therapy uh, to me, that raises like an eyebrow. Like, why? <laughs> you know, what does it matter to you if somebody's going to therapy? Like, and I, I want to make it clear that I'm 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 not talking about like, you know, if your therapist is maybe not acting ethically or appropriately, and somebody has a problem with that, that's justified, right? But if somebody is just like, why do you need to be doing that? You don't need to go to therapy. They're filling your head with all of this nonsense. I don't know, I begin to kind of question that. Like, why do they feel that way? What are they so defensive about, you know? Um, and I would say that's at the, at the heart of, of why narcissists generally don't like it when you go to therapy because they know that they're not going to be able to continue pulling the stuff they've been pulling with you for much longer.
0: Yeah, okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mm-hmm. mentioned a few times uh, in this episode the cult. Thing. So can, mm-hmm. if you don't mind me asking, how did you get into that stuff? Like, what is your background with that?
1: Sure, sure. So my background, like my, my kind of formal background is that when I was um, getting my doctorate, I wrote my dissertation on um, psychotherapy with former cult members um, because it was something that had always interested me. I can explain why or not. It's fine. But, um, so I did that and that was kind of the beginning of bringing it into my like professional life. Um, but for many years after I graduated, I, I worked at treatment programs, which meant that I, you know, I wasn't really ever able to like put myself out there as like, hey, I specialize in working with people who've been in cults because I just, when you work in a treatment center, you just work with whatever clients are there, right? Um, That being said, I did work with a fair number of clients over the years who had some sort of connection to either being in a cult or having family that was in a cult or something like that. Um, But when I finally opened my private practice about seven-ish years ago, that's when I was kind of finally able to put it out there, like hey, I, I help people with addiction and trauma, and I also happen to, you know, help people who have been in cults. Um, and ever since then, I've just been able to, you know, at any given time, I've got, I don't know, three, four, five clients who um, have, have been in a, a cult or have family that's in a cult. Um, and uh, I also do a lot of interviews about it because it's a topic that a lot of people are, are interested in, kind of like narcissistic abuse Um, so that's kind of where, where I've been in it, um, professionally.
0: Okay. Thank you so much. That's, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. That's why I asked that too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I, I think it's interesting too, but I'm pretty biased. Uh, So, okay. (laughs) Um, so that was the last question and today i think we Mm -hmm. had some really great questions and great answers thank you for listening to this episode and thank you natalie one more time for joining me and answering these questions
1: oh of course
0: thanks again and
1: i i love the work that you guys are doing i'm glad you're out there